0: Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks very much for the uh, invitation to come here to Lake Placid. When Ed was reminiscing his times at the Indiana fraternals, uh, Sue and I have had a lot of fun here at Lake Placid and other places over the years. I sort of remember Trafalgar and some of those other wild Indiana gatherings like uh, Tippecanoe and uh, there are all kinds of wild things that went on in the past as young people. So it's fun to be back here at Lake Placid again. And I hope the subject that we have right now to look at, uh, the subject of the study of James, It's one of those subjects that if you go away from this weekend without some good exhortational value to take home with you, then I totally failed. Uh, You failed too, really, because the letter is so clear. It's like the letter is just a series of exhortational points. And uh, I talked to somebody last night where I was just looking at the fact that this letter could have been written last week, as as far as we're concerned, because uh, it's a very common letter, and uh, the, the exhortational things that are in his are uh, really, they're very they're very common today. So I think you'll find that a lot of the lessons that we run into are going to be very similar as we've we've seen before. It's also good to know that if something happens today, you see, if I lose my voice and get laryngitis and all that, it's nice to know that Ed's been a backup in the past. Uh, that's really good to know. Although, as uh, he pointed out to me, he's already had his turn, and really it should be Jerry's turn to uh, take it over this time. <laughs> I don't know what I would uh... <laughs> did I mess something up here? I didn't get it set Oh, all right. Well, we forgot to do one of those tests ahead of time. I'm probably talking too low or something and uh, not loud enough. So, if I talk too loud, though, I'll lose all my voice. Uh, I don't talk that much during the day. Just uh I I teach 6 hours a day, so and my and my kids are constantly up like Jerry was right there and they're wandering around and they're getting Kleenex and they're doing stuff and it's so nice to have an audience that just basically sits down and listens. It's amazing. <laughs> we just don't get that at school, do we? <laughs> just doesn't happen. Anyways, the, uh, the study of James, I, I hope you'll find it. It's, it's one I really like myself. Uh, I was a little worried that maybe somebody had spoken on James recently, but I guess they haven't. And uh, back in uh, the old days, it used to be that James was used a lot. But uh, I haven't looked at James a whole lot until just recently. And at the same time, I happen to be looking at Galatians, because uh, we're doing something in Galatians as well i surprised to find the connections between James and Galatians that uh, we'll look at this morning as well. But this is a, a great mix of good exhortational things with exposition, and hopefully we'll all find some nice practical things that we can take home with us this weekend and apply those in our ecclesial life when we get back home. So as the, the letter starts out, when you go back and look at the background, it's uh, James's letter to the scattered 12 tribes. So we're going to find that what ended up happening in the community is that these tribes had been scattered out of Jerusalem. And when you go back and look at the history of what had gone on, you can see that back in Acts chapter 8, of course, uh, that was the, the death of Stephen. And uh, this, is, this is such a classic microcosm of James's whole letter. If you just look at this little event right here, if we had been alive at the time when Stephen was killed and we had been part of the community at that time, we would have gone home just depressed and upset and frustrated over having lost one of our great brethren and over the fact that it looks like God was sending persecution upon the believers. And we would have gotten so frustrated because we would have been looking at it from our perspective. And what James is going to try to do is raise everybody's level above all that and get out of the rut of the human perspective and look at it from the perspective of God and the angels. And what they were trying to do with the death of Stephen was to force the believers out of Jerusalem and get them to take the good news of the gospel elsewhere. And when you look back at the event, it's easier to see. It's more difficult to see it as you're going through it. But James chapter 1 is all about this. It's about believing that in our trials and in our troubles and the things that go on in our lives, that God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that it's happening for our good that we might one day share his holiness and that the gospel will go to more people. And you can see that. That was the result of of the uh, persecution in Acts chapter 8, that they were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And then in Acts chapter 11, you find the same thing. uh, So a few years went by, and those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen's death, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews only. So, at this point in time, the gospel is now leaving Jerusalem. It's going out into the into the world at this point. It's, it's moved up into the Cyprus area, and it's moving further north. And the gospel is spreading, but again, they're going to Jews only. Now, the ironic thing about this, though, brothers and sisters, when you look back at history, is that the Jews who left because of the persecution were looked down on by the Jews who stayed in the land because they sort of like they got out, say, when things were tough. They left. They didn't stay and they weren't committed. And so they left and they traveled into other areas and they migrated up to the north and over to other areas. And after a few years went by, they settled in in those areas. They got homes, they had jobs, they were well-established, and they became the rich, you see. They were the established group that had gone out. And then later, when James has to write this letter because of the persecution that was arising later on, what happened was as more Jews left the area and as Jews were were leaving Jerusalem later on and were being persecuted in other areas, it was those people that were well-established in the Ecclesias then who were the rich at at times, and the others that were coming up into the area had no establishment, They, they didn't have any basis, no economic basis, and they came and they were poor, and now they were being forced into an area where they were gonna be the ones on the low end of the totem pole, and it ended up creating a lot of trouble in the ecclesias at that time. So James has to write his letter to try to convince these people that you've gotta learn to get along, that each group has to appreciate what the other has to offer. And those are the kind of practical lessons that we, we want to take home today, uh, this weekend at least, from this letter of James. A lot of good practical things. So as the gospel expanded, you can see that uh, you know, up there on the green lines, you got the people that were present on the day of Pentecost. And you can see that out of Jerusalem, they spread out into all those different regions as God was trying to take the gospel out of Jerusalem. The word of the Lord was really going forth from Jerusalem. And then we have Stephen's persecution in the orange. And then the Apostle Paul up there in the red, and you can see that the gospel was spreading out. That was God's plan. Now, maybe the people at the time didn't understand it, but that was the plan of God. And James simply writes his letter to try to help people understand that we've got to learn to cooperate with what God's doing in our life. We've got to quit fighting it. We have to quit fighting it and just cooperate and believe and trust that God knows what he's doing. And it's the same issues back then that we face today. It's no different in our lives today. We've got the same basic problems. So which James was he? When you go back and look over the history of uh, the different Jameses that existed, if we're going to look at his letter, we might as well take a shot at who he was. And uh, I admit there's no agreement in our community on this because he could have been the son of Zebedee, who was the brother of John. That he was the one that was killed in Acts chapter 12. He could have also been the son of Alphaeus, who uh, may have been the brother of Matthew. And you go back and look at that. It's a possibility. He could have been the son of Cleopas and Mary. He's, all, he's the one who's called James the Little. He was the brother of Joseph. And uh, it's possible even that that may be the same James as the son of Alphaeus uh, for number two up there. But I really think that what happens with James is that he was probably James the half-brother of Jesus. And you look in our community, at least most of our, our brethren have settled on this as well. Uh, because there's enough evidence there from the Greek scholars that if you go and you look at the word parallels in Acts chapter 15 and the Jerusalem conference letter and the way James handled Acts chapter 15, uh, a lot of the phrases in the Greek evidently are similar phrases as to what he uses in this letter. So the people that do the word studies uh, have been convinced that this is the same James he also uh, definitely had the respect of the ecclesia uh, in Acts chapter 15 because you could see he was running the meeting. And, and here it was like this was the most devastating thing that had happened in the community at that time. And here they're having this big uh, uh, conference there in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And of all people, who's the one who stands up and settles everybody and resolves the issue after people like Peter and Paul and all these different people had had their say? It's James! James is the one who brings everything together and had the respect of the people and was able to come up with a compromise solution at that time. And when you look at some of the word connections in this letter, you're going to be amazed at, uh, if you just look for echoes as we're going through it uh, today and tomorrow. You'll see a lot of Bible echoes with words that are in the Gospels, which are probably because he grew up with Jesus. And so he got used to hearing the terms that Jesus was using around the house and in their family, and then he incorporated those into his letter as well, and he would have been challenged by Jesus himself. So our suggestion is that it's probably the same James that uh, shows up in the family of Jesus as his half-brother, the reference there in Matthew 13, that he's the one who was the, the brother of Jesus with Joseph and Simon and Judas. Now, James, when you look back at his own personal experience, then if that's the case, he would have grown up with Jesus as, as a child, growing up with him as his older brother. And he would have then been able to reflect upon a lot of these teachings of Jesus. And many of the phrases that he uses, you'll, you'll see they're, they're very similar to what you find like in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus went out preaching to the people. You find that this James, we will see in this letter, he's well-versed in the Law and the Prophets. See, he knows his Bible really well. You'll find that he challenges us to be a doer of the word, very similar to what Jesus did when he went out preaching the gospel, to become a doer, not just a hearer. Because Jesus had been frustrated over watching the Pharisaical and the Sadducee approach to the to the Bible, that you can have a religion that has no power to change your life. And he would have watched Jesus challenge these people over the years, and James himself would have probably talked with them at home. And James comes with this background already understanding the need to become a doer and not just a hearer only. And of course he had the firsthand experience of the prejudice against Jesus. He saw how the religious leaders of his time treated somebody who was trying to live the truth and the prejudice that they had against him because he was from the wrong city or the wrong family or he didn't come up the right way and all these reasons that they had. And they didn't really value him for what he had to offer at all. And James saw that in in the ecclesia, in the first century ecclesia, and he warned us against prejudice that's going to come up in this letter a lot. And of course, he was also personally uh, called by Jesus after the resurrection. So now James definitely was somebody that Jesus had good intentions of using and uh, found as a very useful tool in the first century ecclesia. So that's uh, at least a suggestion as some of the background to this man and, uh, that writes this letter, but I don't want to spend a lot of time on that this weekend. If you like the history and you want to get into that, you can have a look at it in our writings. There's a lot of stuff written on the background of James. But when he does introduce himself, you'll notice in the very first verse of this book that he writes, or in the letter that he writes, you notice how he doesn't play on any of those things that he could have. He doesn't say, "'James, the half-brother of Jesus,' You know, to like put himself up there as, as better than the others. He doesn't want to do that. He wants to put everybody down at the same level and just encourage us all to appreciate what everybody has to bring to the table, appreciate what everybody can do in ecclesial life or in family life, instead of ranking people as, well, this person's over this person and so on. And those are, great, those are great lessons that we're going to walk home with this weekend because as a community, we run into the same problems. that you know, We do this in our families. We do this in our ecclesias. We do this in the community at large where we rank people and we put somebody up here and somebody down there. You know, I just, the, even this whole gathering has tendencies to do that because you know somebody comes up and does all the lip service up here and gives the classes, and we tend to rank people like that. But we forget about, look at all the work that goes on and all the the behind-the-scenes things to organize this gathering so that we could even have it. And and somebody to play the piano and uh, and all the different things that we have. Imagine what this gathering would be like if we found out all of a sudden there was no food. No food. And then we'd find out that, well, I guess maybe the classes didn't matter so much after all because I think most of us would be more worried about the food at that point. Or those of us as parents, imagine if nobody showed up to take the kids' classes this morning and all of a sudden you find out, you get here that, well, we're all responsible for our own children and that's it for the classes today. See, all those different aspects are really important in ecclesial life. Not just here at this gathering, but back home in our ecclesias we have to learn the value of what everybody brings to ecclesial life. And I think you're going to find James is one of those people. He valued all the different things that people could bring, and he was very frustrated at the prejudice that people had, the rankings that were going on in ecclesial life, and he just thought, brethren, these things should not be like this. We, we have to appreciate each other for the love of God, for what we can do in the community and the family, and uh, that's, that's the way James was. You'll see that's the way he introduces himself. When you go back and look at the reasons for why he wrote the letter, there was definitely this problem of persecution going on at this time, that the rich were persecuting the poor. And the suggestion is that these were the established folks that had been there for a while, and as believers were leaving the community, uh, leaving Jerusalem, and they were, they were going out into these areas where the gospel had preached and a little ecclesias were established, that they were not being accepted. They were being looked down on when they, when they came from Jerusalem, and there was a lot of conflict going on in the ecclesial life. Too many of the uh, the Jewish believers at this time had a belief system that really wasn't manifested in a good way of life. What had happened is the gospel had gone out, people had left Jerusalem, and they'd taken the gospel with them, but they didn't really know how to live it. It was like a religion to have rather than to live. And you you see that today. It's very easy to have the right religion and yet not live it. We just become hearers of the word and not doers. And this was the problem James was facing. And all the riches and the covetousness were affecting some of the people, and, and they ended up being prejudiced against the poor. The poor would come in and they'd look at him as, oh, it's a poor person, we'll have them sit way back there so they don't bother the service. And they were, they were doing this kind of thing in a life. And if some of it got so bad that they ended up having verbal wars that were being fought, going on in Ecclesial Life. And some even suggest that the words used in the Greek were actually for fighting, that fistfights would break out amongst the brethren because they were, they were so at each other all the time and there were so many frustrations going on at this time that James felt he had to write the letter. So the letter probably went out somewhere around 80 45, AD 46. The suggestion is it's probably before Paul's first missionary journey, before Paul went out and preached the gospel. Uh, James put this letter out. The suggestion for that is because it's mainly persecution by rich Jews against poor Jews. In fact, you'll notice as we go through the letter this weekend, there's no reference to the Gentiles which in in the Apostle Paul's letters, there's constantly, later on, you know, know, suppose James had actually solved this problem. The next, within a couple of years, Paul goes out and he preaches the gospel to all these Gentiles up in Antioch and over. He goes into Cyprus and, and takes it into Galatia and eventually into Macedonia. And now the next problem is how do the Jews and Gentiles get along? Right now, it's a Jew versus Jew problem in ecclesial life. And it just goes to show that no matter what you have in ecclesial life, Human nature is such that people, people sometimes want to be at each other's throats. We look for reasons to differ. We look at what's different about each other rather than what's the same, and that's where the conflict arises. We, we don't appreciate what the other people can bring to ecclesial life. So uh, hopefully this weekend we'll get a chance to look at James's suggestions as to how we can overcome those things. Because he lays them out on the table, and then he gives us little measuring tools. Well, here's how you can tell how you're doing on this, and here's how you can tell how you're doing on this issue, and everybody can measure themselves. Uh, We're not here to measure each other. We're here to measure ourselves this weekend and find out how we're doing and what we can do to improve. Uh, The suggestion on the letter is that it probably was late enough for James' authority to be established. And you find in Acts chapter 12, by that point in time, when the other James died, that this James was taking over the Jerusalem Ecclesia. He was looked at as the leader of the Ecclesia in in Acts chapter 12. And by Acts 15, he definitely was the one that everybody looked to at the Jerusalem conference. But it's early enough that the inclusion of the Gentiles was not a major issue at this point. So probably it's before Acts 15, before the Apostle Paul went out in his first missionary journey. Uh, There's really no mention of these Gentiles at all. So if you happen to have that little Bible insert right there, and you're familiar with that one at all, on the Acts of the Apostles, uh, probably it's somewhere in that red box in the AD 45, AD 46 region. And where we are in this letter is probably between some point where James was killed, that's uh, James the brother John when he died in, in Acts chapter 12 when Herod killed him, and Paul's first missionary journey. This is probably before Paul takes the gospel out and turns to the Gentiles. So James is writing this letter probably early on. It's one of the first letters that, that comes up. Now, I happen to be doing a study of Galatians at the same time as I was working on James, and I had, never, I had not caught on to this before, but uh, maybe some of you have. I noticed some of our folks that give uh, classes, tapes that I was listening to, they had caught on to it, and some of our old books that had picked this up. But I didn't realize that the letter to James and the letter to the Galatians are probably both early letters. I, I'd looked at that before but I hadn't realized what was happening. And sometimes it's nice to know the big picture. The suggestion is, as to how all this fits together, is that what you have on the extreme ends of the Jewish community at this time is that we had the Jewish believers who had come into the truth and who were so happy about grace that they sort of sat back and they liked the idea that, oh, we've got the right religion, we're being saved by grace, and so they became the hearers. They're on the one extreme over there, but they didn't do anything. They weren't involved in ecclesial life at all. They just were hearers. And they sort of liked being part of this right religion. It fit in really well with their Jewish philosophy or we are the chosen people anyways. On the other end, you see, uh, the, other, uh, the other side of this would be the Jews who felt from their, their, the the, the uh, Pharisee type upbringing that we've got to do it. We've got to do it. We've got to get out there and do and do and do and do because Christ didn't do it all and we've got to save ourselves and so that's on the other side when you look at the extreme positions one brother or sister sits there and thinking oh it's so nice to be saved by grace and the other one's out there doing 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 an ecclesial life not not because they're, they're doing it for you but because they feel like they've got to do it themselves or that they can't earn their way to the kingdom and see, that's what ha- those are like the, the two extremes when you look at human personalities of what we find in ecclesial life. So there's the two extremes. And so what James is going to try to aim at and what the Apostle Paul is going to try to aim at is this whole issue of that isn't what should be motivating us. What the truth was supposed to do, brothers and sisters, what faith was supposed to do, was to motivate us to work for God and work for each other through love. That's what it's all about. It's not so I can earn my way to the kingdom. And at the same time, I can't sit there and do nothing because I see needs out there. People need us to be involved. And you can't sit there in the chair and do nothing because we love those people and we want to help them. So faith working through love, which is Paul's phrase in Galatians 5 and verse 6, that is supposed to be the motivating factor in the middle that will drive us to live the life of Christ. And so you're going to see James hitting at this issue, and you'll see the Apostle Paul hitting at this. So what James does is James is dealing with the hearers only. He ran into this first, before the gospel went out to the Gentiles. And so James, in his letter, tries to correct this problem of the hearers only. We've got to become doers. Faith has to motivate us. It's got to get us working in our lives. And only a few years later, after the Apostle Paul went out and preached to the Gentiles and went through his missionary journeys... Then the Judaizers came into his ecclesias, you see, and Paul has to write Galatians and all of his letters to try to counter the, the, the impact of the Judaizers who came in on the other end of James. So what some people do is they look at Paul's and James' letters and they think, well, the two are at conflict with each other. You know, James is saying that we need to be a doer of the word and we, and we, have, to have, uh, we have to be doing and doing, and the apostle Paul comes along and says, it's faith, it's faith, and, and that isn't it at all what they're doing is they're coming at two different extreme cases trying to battle the extremes and bring everybody back to the center. And that's, it's a great way, and it came right early on in the ecclesia. So God set up a situation where these two would write these letters early on in the ecclesial life so that they would try to counter both of these extremes. And uh, it's, it's good because it helps us balance out our own lives. So, you know, if we find ourselves leaning one way or leaning the other way, now we know which letter we've got to turn to, you see. If we tend to be one of those people that's a doer, 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 and we're like, we've got to earn our salvation. We get out Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and we read Paul's letters, and if we're one of those people that's sort of laid back in ecclesial life, like, I've sort of done my job and let other people take over and I don't need to really be involved anymore, then we better come back and read James because you can't have a faith You can't have a faith that's not balanced with works of faith. We have to be helping in ecclesial life. There is no end to this help. And all of us, uh, no matter how young or how old we are, you can all help. Everybody can help in ecclesial life. And so we have to leave here this weekend with a faith that motivates us to become involved and do things for our brothers and sisters at home and to work for God. Work in our families and work in our ecclesias. When you go back and look at this transition period that James was, uh, was dealing with, it really was a transition period. As the gospel was going out to all these different places, many of the believing Jews still attended the synagogues. In fact, James uses the word synagogues in James chapter 2. We just don't see it in our Bible versions. They, they cover it up with something else, uh, like the New King James just uh, says the assembly. But that's actually the word synagogue, and, and you can see how connected they were at that time still to the synagogues. Many of the believers probably still went back to the synagogues at time and would go there, and they would visit the temple if they, if they were in Jerusalem. You're, you're looking at a Jewish community it was still having a tremendous impact on the believers at this time so that they couldn't just exist in and of themselves. The Jewish community was still having a major impact because of the connection that was there, and many of the Jewish believers still kept the law. So you've got this transition period going on right now where the, the Jewish uh, folks with the, with the law and with their temple and with their synagogues was still having a major impact on the community. And because of that, uh, some of them at least had developed this philosophy of life that we are the people and all we've got to do is believe the right things. As long as you go through the statement of faith and you say yes, 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 and you're baptized, then you are saved. And there's really, you don't have to do anything, you just have to believe. And, uh, oh, they like this idea of, you know, have faith. This, this sounds good, you see. I like uh, what I'm hearing uh, coming out of Jerusalem, this idea of having faith, because that way, oh, I have faith, I believe, I have faith. And then they didn't do anything. They didn't change their own lives, and they didn't help out in the Ecclesia. And so James is going to try to counter that problem. And when you look back at some of the problems that this Jewish background would have given, uh, because they depended on their their Jewish heritage, many of the Jews did this. Some of them now are moving into ecclesial life. They thought they were the chosen people. They believe now that not only were they the chosen people, but now, you see, they were not only the chosen, now they had access to the grace of God. This put them in even a better category. And so they ended up feeling as a philosophy that God would save them because they're Jews, now associated with Christ, and it didn't have to have any impact on their behavior. I don't have to change my way of life. I don't have to help anybody out. You just got to have the right religion, and you're saved by faith. And so James has to counter this problem and say, this is not good enough. When you watch for some of the illusions that are in this letter, you can see that he talks about the waves of the sea in, in chapter 1 at verse 6. Uh, it's the flower of the field that withers. The human life cycles in chapter 1. These are just some of the ones that you would have picked up in the reading this morning. The uh, shadow of turning with the planets. And also he brought us forth as the first fruits out there. In the, and you can see that James is somebody who's in tune with nature. He, you, know, you can tell he's somebody who lived like on a farm and he, he saw all these different aspects in nature that God was trying to use to help us think about higher spiritual things and he brings those into his letter. He's, he's a very practical writer that way. Now, getting into the actual letter then, uh, hopefully we have a chance to look through chapter 1. We'll see how far we get in this first class. Uh, the background, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but it helps, it's helpful to have a little bit of background to get some ideas to what James is trying to counter. So what he does in chapter 1, in the, the first, at the beginning of the letter, he sets out right from the beginning that, look, you folks are going through problems. You're having trials in your families and ecclesial life. And look, God will help you understand your trials if... If you believe and you trust in Him. Now, if you don't follow the if, if you're double minded, there's not much God can do until you're ready to get on board. So, what He does is talk about the joys of fall, falling into trials. In, in verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing, see, if we have confidence and trust in God, then when problems come into our life, whatever they are problems at work, problems with your children, problems in the ecclesia. Whatever those problems are, we have that, in the back of our minds, we have that total trust and confidence that God is at work. He's the one behind this. He's trying to help us in, the, in these trials and these troubles. So he can say, count it all joy when you fall into these various trials. Not that we're excited when, when somebody gets sick. Not that we're happy when we have ecclesial troubles. But we have the joy and the presence and the peace of mind to realize that what God is doing is that he's testing our faith. And this is going to produce patience. Because we're not going to be able to do it all. We're going to find out we can't solve all these problems. And so we're going to learn to trust in God. And not only patience, but patience is going to have its perfect work and you're going to become perfect and complete and lacking nothing. And without those problems, you'll never be at that point. It's like an athlete that finds that if you want to become a really fast runner and you want to do your best, some of the athletes, what they'll do, are you want to become a real good jumper, they'll wear weights around their ankles and they'll run with weights on them or they'll put heavy things on and they'll endure the troubles and the trials of practicing like that. So when it comes time for the race, they can take them off and really run. And that's what troubles do in our life. They help us get through those periods. We learn things. We develop things that we couldn't have developed without them. And we get closer and closer to the character of God. And so he says that what what he encourages us to do then is that, you know, believe and, and, and realize that these things are for our benefit. That these trials are going to help us reevaluate what really is important in our life. Those issues we argued about last week or now just being able to get through a week of being healthy are now dealing with an ecclesial problem or a a trouble with our child and we used to think we had problems before and now God brings new ones into our life not because he wants to destroy us because he wants us to look back and realize that those things we made big issues of they were just little tiny things and we should have let them go should have let them go and we would have been much better off and uh, we'll learn to do that over time when we really face bigger issues but it only works, brothers and sisters and young people, this only works. The whole premise of James's letter is you really do believe that angels are working in your life, that they are involved in these problems, in these trials, and they didn't happen by chance. See, if, if we run into a health issue or we run into a car accident on the way home or we get home and find out something's happened with our job or our boyfriend or our girlfriend has decided they're done with us if we look at all those events in life and we just say, well, it just sort of happened, it was my turn, then we miss the point. And we don't grow from that. What God, is he's trying to talk to us. He's trying to get us to learn and develop. And James says, this is why you can count it joy because this series of steps is going to bring you to a point where you're going to be one of the children of God and you're going to have things that you'll live, you'll live with forever. And God will be able to entrust you with eternal life and believe that you'll do something good with it. This is how you get there and there's really there's no other way to get there. You have to believe. So what happens when these problems occur is we don't fight God over it. We don't argue with each other over it. We don't get mad and angry with our spouses and our children or our parents over it. We accept the fact that God has brought it into our life to change us, to try to help us develop to become a better child of God. And it's, uh, I guess it's important to look there at, the, at that verse there when he says at the end of verse 2 that notice it's when in counter all joy when you fall in the various trials. This isn't a kind of an issue where we like purposely go out and, uh, and actually create a trial for ourselves. It's not like saying leave Lake Placid and you know go home at 150 miles an hour and have a major car accident and then say, oh, thank you, God, for the problem. Uh, That isn't what he's talking about. Or, you know, we don't go spend economically with our credit cards and spend, spend, and buy all this stuff and then say, well, thank you for the debt that I'm in and I know I'm going to learn something from this. These are trials that God brings into your life. You know, and so it's maybe worth underlining that word fall because, you see, James put it in there for a reason. It's not that you go out and look for these things. They're going to come anyway, but don't bring them on yourself. Let God pick the things. He'll know much better what to bring into your life than we would ever know what to bring. And that's true for ourselves, and it's true for others as well. That he knows the right trials to bring. So it's when you fall into those trials, not when we, uh, we jump into them. And the joy does come later. You know, you know, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote that letter to the Hebrews, and he said at the end of, of all the exposition in Hebrews, and he, and he points out in chapter 12 this issue, it's the same issue as James. God is treating you as sons, he says in Hebrews chapter 12. You're running the race, and Jesus has run the race, and he finished it. And now he's set down at the right hand of God at the beginning of the chapter. And so he can say the same thing. You can have an inner peace and a joy because you know that this is what God's after. And, and he, Paul admits it for the moment in, in Hebrews 12 and at verse 11 there. No chastening seems joyful for the present. It's painful right now. He's real. You, know, you don't tell people that are going through troubles to just be happy and smile all the time when they're in pain. And, there, and there's things that have happened in their life. But they can have that inner joy and realize that God's doing something good with this. He's, he's working in your life. It's afterwards that it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness if, you see, we've been trained by it. If we haven't been trained by it, the fruit never comes. And James is going to say the same thing in this letter. Paul and James are on the same wavelength all the way through their letters. They're just coming at it from different perspectives. One who's trying to earn their way through and the other one who's just sitting back and appreciating the grace of God but they're both coming to that same central point that God is changing your life. Believe it and accept it, but you've got to be involved. This isn't something we sit back and watch. We're involved. We're a part of this. He expects us to be a player, and he wants us to be involved, not just sit back and appreciate the grace of God. So that's what we do. We appreciate it later on. So he says in this letter in chapter 1 that, look, if troubles come into your life, if you're experiencing personal problems right now, if there's an illness in your life, if there's a family member who's sick, if something's happened at your job, your ecclesia, whatever it is, with the young people, problems at school, things that are going on with your, your friends, your boyfriends, your girlfriends, your friends at school that you have, if you're currently experiencing a problem, then look, take it to God. Ask him. Ask him for wisdom to understand. See, i've heard this passage quoted for years about you know if we lack wisdom ask god and he'll make us smarter people that isn't what it's about it's about understanding the problems and the troubles that you're going through in your life what does god expect me to learn from this why is this happening and, and we take it to god and we talk to him and we ask him and sometimes with with some of our young couples they find for years they can't have children just like you know with, with isaac and they go to god and they pray and they talk to god trying to understand why what's going on in our lives we don't just treat it as, well, I'm one of those statistics that certain percent of the people uh, you know, don't get pregnant. That, that isn't what it's about. God's trying to talk to us. He wants us to learn. And he, he's hoping that we're going to develop patience and we're going to develop all these characteristics for which he can entrust eternal life. So he says, look, if you lack the wisdom, not just wisdom in general, but the wisdom to understand your troubles, talk to God and ask him for help. Who gives to all liberally all liberally, you'll notice there, not just certain classes of people, because you see he's leading into this issue of prejudice without reproach, and it will be given to him. But the problem is, when we go to ask for wisdom, you see, we've got to ask in faith. That's the key. We've got to ask in faith, fully convinced that God's involved in the problem. See, if we're not convinced, then we're not going to see the answer. We're never going to understand what God was, was trying to get us to think about. So what he deals with next in verse 8 is the double-minded man. You see, if we don't ask in faith, believing that God's involved, then he uses that natural allusion to the idea well, like we're like a wave of the sea. We're like driven and we're tossed. We don't, one day we sort of think God's involved, and the next day the wave comes by and drops us down. Well, I think that's just what I did. And the next day we think God's involved, and the next day we don't. And then we make our decisions that way. We're not focused, we're not single-minded trying to understand what is God trying to tell me. And so he brings up this issue of the double-minded man being unstable in all his ways. And that issue is going to be dealt with all the way through this letter. I mean, Really, this, for these first eight verses, the entire rest of the letter is all about these eight verses. It's all about these issues over and over again with practical examples of them coming up over and over again. And see, there's two ways you can look at life. You can either see life as what I did and what I caused and all the stuff that I'm trying to get, or you can look at it from the perspective of what is God bringing into my life and he's trying to help me learn? What am I supposed to learn from this? And and James is trying to help people understand that if we want the wisdom that comes from God and we want to understand these things, we have to believe that God's involved. And then God can talk to us, you see. And what it will do, brothers and sisters, is that The double-minded man, when you look at what ends up happening, if we're one of those people who goes and thinks, well, God's not involved and this is just happening and and I've got to find the solutions, I've got to work my way out of this, it's all about I have to, I have to, I have to. And see, that's when the problems develop. That's when we start taking advantage of other people. That's when our mouth starts to run, as he's going to talk in chapter 3. This is where it stems from. If we really think that God's not involved, then we think it's okay to solve the problem my way. And, I mean, that's, that's the issues of life. And so we do. We find ways to solve it. Well, I'm going to scheme for this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and we justify it all thinking, well, I had to solve that problem. I had to deal with that issue instead of sometimes sitting back and watching, well, what's, what's God trying to teach me through this? What's, what, do I, what am I supposed to learn from this and, uh, and, and, and try to look at it that way? So the fleshly thinking, what it does is it, it ends up taking um, the responsibility away sometimes, and we end up blaming God for our problems, which he's going to deal with in chapter 1. I'm going to solve the problem my way. And what that leads to in the end is that the ends will justify the means. And you know, you hear that heard sometimes. Well, in the end, it'll be okay. And this applies on all different issues of ecclesial and family life. Imagine in our ecclesias, you you, you see issues come up. And brothers and sisters, we think that we have to, well, this issue, it's got to be done this way. That's the right way to do it. And so we scheme through all these different things in the end to make sure it gets done that way. Because I know that's the right way. And here's my Bible to prove it. And both sides get our Bibles. It's not like one side has a Bible and the other doesn't. It's a matter of a perspective that we're coming from. And if we can't sit back and watch God sometimes and we want to drive our way through, then we're going to live with all the consequences of that in ecclesial life and family life as well. But we live with the problems and the consequences because we try to drive something through our way. Or other times we, we just we don't even take responsibility for issues if for the other person we just blame God for having brought a problem on us and that's sort of like the other extreme, so James is going to try to tackle those kind of issues, so you'll find that these trials what they do is they reveal the double-minded thinking, and so God brings money problems into our lives he brings sickness he brings accidents we have marital problems problems with children ecclesial members that God brings into our family and people move in and people move out or people that are already there. And this entire rest of the letter that James writes is going to deal with all those issues and simply show us practical ways that he saw in ecclesial life at that time that these issues were being dealt with, and people were not single-minded. Sometimes they were thinking God was involved, and other times they were thinking, oh, I know, it's got to be done this way, I'm going to handle it like this, and they would force their way on the ecclesia, and it ended up to being a case where they would mistreat people. So when you look at how practical James is, as soon as he lays the issue out and says, look, the challenge is to be single-minded. We have to believe God's involved. As soon as we open a door for God's not involved, then we either blame God for it or we end up saying, well, I've got to solve it my way. So he says, look, here's a perfect example right off the bat. And he covers in verse 9 and 10. He says, look, look at, look at the rich and the poor. So in verse 9, let the lowly brother, the poor brother, glory in his exaltation. So the brethren that were coming out there that were poor, they can rejoice in the fact that, look at when we come to meeting, every day of our life we're forgiven of our sins, and God has exalted us into his family. And in verse 10, look at the rich. Let him glory in his humiliation, because it's the flower of the field, he's going to pass away. And God's going to take the the rich and he's going to bring them down to this level. And the poor, he's going to raise them all up. And what he's done is he's put everybody at the same level in the family of God. And what what James is trying to get folks to see is that no matter which category you were in, if you were single-minded and you were believing and trusting that God was involved, God will develop faith in both categories and both people are worth saving. They're both part of the family of God and we have to treat them that way. We can't just treat one class and accept them and reject the others. And so that's what he's trying to get us to accept. And he starts right out with, you know, what better than economics? Because every ecclesia, every you know, family situation you're going to look at, there's different economics. There's some that have money and there's some that don't. And so James would say, look, all you've got to do is accept that and believe that God put that there, not all these individual people, God has made it this way and you've got to, if you're down here, you've got to rejoice that there's people here that can plan these gatherings and pay for a lot of the things that that we don't actually pay our own way on. And if you're up here, you've got to rejoice that there's folks down there that God is expecting you to help out and he's giving you an opportunity to show his kindness and his, and his love for other people and value what those other people can bring to, to ecclesial life that you maybe don't understand at all because you're coming from a whole different background up there. And if both groups will do that, then you can have unity and peace and harmony in ecclesial life. And if you ever manage to pull that off, I'd like to come to your ecclesia. See? <laughs> because that is very difficult to do in any family and any ecclesia. But we can't just throw that out and say, well, forget it, it's not possible. That's what we've got to aim for. And the more brothers and sisters that are aiming for that, the more peaceful ecclesial life and family life will be. So both groups are going to have to learn from their situation. So in verses 12 to 18, then, what he does is he goes into these trials and shows us that what God's trying to do is develop us as children. And he points out, as, as children of God, he points out in verse 12 that, look, uh, you know, it's worth going through the troubles, personally for you because you are going to obtain the crown of life and it's a crown of life for all those who are approved through trials so look keep going keep enduring keep going through it because it's going to be worth it for you in the end he's promised eternal life and you'll get the crown it's promised to all those who love him and it, at the same time, it indicates the love for Christ that we have. It's the, the power to endure trials. This is one of the ways that you're able to express to God that you are learning to live like his children, that we endure through these problems and aim for that crown of life. When he deals with the trials versus the temptations, brother and sister, it's good to look at the difference there. God uses trials to develop our character. And what, ended up, what James saw was going to come is that people were going to blame their trials on God. And they would say, well, God brought this into my life and now I've fallen into sin and it's God's fault because he brought the temptation. It's not God's fault. What he does is he brings the trials to develop our character and then the temptations to go the wrong way, they come from in here. They're they're from us. What God was hoping is that we would live through the trial, learn to endure, develop patience and make the right decision. When we made the wrong choice, that was our fault up here. And so right away he realized he was going to have to lay out very clearly the difference between the trial and the temptation that goes on in our head to choose to do sin. See, God can't be tempted by evil, and he doesn't tempt anybody with evil. So don't blame your trials and temptations on God, when He brings economic trouble into our life, when people are losing their jobs and losing their homes, and when the health issues come up in our lives, and we respond the wrong way. That's my fault. That's my fault that I did that. God brought the trouble and the trial hoping that I would learn patience and kindness and endurance, hoping that I would develop a a greater aspect of his character. And if I choose the wrong way, I failed. I failed, not God. He wasn't trying to destroy me. He was like a parent who's bringing their children through experiences of life, hoping they're going to learn to make the right choice this time. And then so many times he has to bail us out when we don't but he's hoping that we'll make make the right choice. He's doing these things so that we will develop. You see, the double-minded man doesn't get that. The double-minded man inevitably goes back to the thinking of the flesh and thinks, oh, I've got to work my way out of this, blames God for their troubles, and "Ah, what am I going to do to solve this problem, not realizing that I brought it on myself because I reacted the wrong way. And so James is aiming at single-mindedness. Single-mindedness will help us get through these problems like that. And then he deals with the the pathway that's there to death, you see. And you watch what he does here in this little section. that He says, look, what we all do is we go through this this little pathway. We see things that we want, you see. We have this desire. And then the desire, it conceives. And we think of a plan about, oh, what can we do with that, you see. And then baby sin gets born because we've gone another step further into this problem. And in the end, all it does is bring full-grown death. And it's all because of back there at step one, when the eyes saw we didn't deal with the issue. Now, don't blame God for that. Maybe God did provide a situation in which we saw something. But what he's hoping, brothers and sisters, is that with single-mindedness, we will let the power of the Word of God overcome that in our lives. And so he gives us that that power later on in the chapter of of the implanted Word, of, of letting this implanted Word develop your life so that you won't go down this pathway to death. He deals with our God is, is a loving Father, you see. He's not out to destroy us. He, in verse 17, he says, Look, to our, our Father, every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variableness or shadow of turning. And of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. This Father doesn't want to destroy you through these troubles. He wants to save you. He's trying to save you and your family, your children, your parents. Through all of these troubles, he wants us to succeed. And so he keeps giving us good gifts in addition to these troubles and these trials because he wants us to succeed. He does not want to destroy us. And so we find that what happens in verse 18, you know it's worth underlining that, of his own will he brought us forth. This was not by some accident of our mom and dad taught us the truth. This wasn't through some experience where somebody happened to see a gospel message and they got brought to the Christadelphians. It's of God's own will See, single-mindedness believes that, that God brought you to this. He's brought you into his family. He wants everybody here to make it. And so when he brings those troubles and those problems into our families and ecclesial life, these are just opportunities for us to develop his character. He challenges us like that so that we will make it and become part of the family of God. So that's what he's after right there. And he leaves him with the idea that he's like the father of lights. See, he's the father of the lights. And what he's hoping, brothers and sisters, is that when we get single-minded and we believe that he's active in our lives and we trust the thing that he's bringing, we will learn to shine like him. And all those stars that you're going to see out there tonight, if it's not too cloudy out there, all those stars that we see out here, we get away from the city and you can actually see the stars, those are to remind us that that's what all of us are like in the kingdom. They're going to all shine like the stars. And he's the father of it all, and everybody has to learn to shine like him. And this is what he's after through all these troubles and these problems. And there's no variation with him. And what he does then is introduce these little topics here at the end of chapter 1 that he's going to deal with now in the rest of the letter. You're going to see there's no variation. It's not like he shines on the just and he doesn't shine on the unjust, he doesn't send the rain on them and no rain on them. There's no variableness with God, and there's no shadow due to turning nobody's left in the shade. What he does is he gives every one of us the same opportunity. He shines on everybody. The wheat and the tares of ecclesial life, they're all out there together and they're all getting rained on together because he wants everybody to make it. That's the kind of God we have. No partiality. And if that's what our God is like, brothers and sisters, we're going to find that that's what we've got to aim to be like in ecclesial life too. So the goal then that we'll look at, we'll maybe finish off a few things in chapter 1 in the next class and then move on to some very practical examples that he covers in chapter 2 about how we can measure how we're doing in this. How are we doing in our own personal lives when we try to like, you know, figure out are we learning to live like the character of God? And he brings up this issue of partiality. He's going to deal with that. And then he's going to look at this issue of are we one of these people that sits back and watches everybody else work in ecclesial life or are we one of those that are out there doing doing the word because we really believe by faith that God wants us to be a part of, an active part of his family and we can't just sit back and watch everybody else do it. So hopefully in uh, class two we'll get a chance to look at those things too. Thanks very much.